0: can try again.
1: Torah Resource presents The Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard. And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are Rob and Caleb. <laughs>
0: What up and shalom. Hey, welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Haig, and with me, as always, the Batman to our dynamic duo, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? I'm Batman. <laughs> How's
1: it going, brother? I'm enjoying being uh, your fellow student this quarter. Yes, yes. In Masora yes. class. Did you do your assignment this week?
0: Uh, the, which which week? This coming the the week? we just got it. Well, the one we got last night. No, I have not done it yet. I haven't even looked at it. To be honest, I, I'm I'm too. Big. Here's the deal for for those listening. I am <laughs> I'm taking Greek from Rob Van Hoff, and then Rob and I are both taking Mazora, the Mazora of the Hebrew Bible from my father Tim Haig. I my first and foremost goal is to learn Greek, so I am I am working tirelessly. To try to, to get a handle on Greek, that is what I work on first in the week, and if I have extra time, then it's over to the, to the Masora. But I'm having fun in both classes, and well, I think can I, it, share, can I share a little bit about what our assignment is this week? Oh, yeah. our assignment, Well, hang, just, on, just, hang on, hang on, just a sec. We got to set it up if we're if we're going to do that. So, okay. we, we've we've said ahead. this before, but the Masora, if the for those who don't know, the scribes made these little marks. They made vowels in the in different manuscripts as well. Uh, personal manuscripts, not manuscripts that w- would be read in the synagogue. And those marks are co- called the Masoretic notes or the Masora. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Masora. You kind of have to be a little bit of a nerd to enjoy the Masora, but Rob and I are both nerds, <laughs> and so we really enjoy it. Go ahead, Rob. What, what, do, you, what do you like? about Well, right. this, uh,
1: this week we have a really, I think it's a really cool assignment. There are a handful of places, about 20 places in the Tanakh, where the word low occurs, spelled lamed aleph, where it normally means low, not like usually used in conjunction with a verb, I will not do this, or he will not do that, or you will not do this. Where the rabbi, well, not the rabbis, I, I should clarify, well, where the Masoretes, the, the scribal tradition, says, Don't read it as not, but read it as the word lo, sounds exactly the same so it's a homonym,
0: lamed vav, to so, him so wait, hang on, just so in other so, words, so, don't
1: read it as not, read it as to him
0: so it's, it's the same word, but it's just spelled, it's not the same word but it, it, it's spelled differently but it sounds exactly the same right, a homonym they call that, it sounds the same, yeah. but it's spelled differently
1: and so there's like these roughly 20 times, a little less than 20 uh, times where this occurs, where the text says low, where you would think not the word not with the whatever, whatever verb and the uh, again the scribal tradition says don 't read it as not, read it as to him or for him and what we're, what we 're doing this week is uh, every student has been assigned some different Bibles to look at and see which bibles through, through these handful of verses or two hands full of verses, uh, side with the written text or with the scribal uh, command to yeah. read it differently. And I, I went through my assignment this morning and looked, and wow, you know, uh, it's not consistent. You know, sometimes a, an English translation will side with the way the scribes say to read it, um, uh, or to to read it, but not— uh, that, that is different than the way it's written. And then sometimes the English translations stick with the written text and ignore the scribal command. So uh, it's just, it's an amazing study to see how, uh, even in, in Christian circles, I also looked at the Septuagint
0: and the Peshito Old Testament. It's not consistent in any of those. Well, I, and, and leave it to Rob to, to start us off with some extremely heady uh, uh, information, but I like that. Boom, boom, boom. Yes, and and not only that, but the thing that this specific study because I've actually looked at this before. My father and I have looked at this before. The thing that this study actually shows is that your English translation that you might be reading, whether it's the ESV, the Complete Jewish Bible, the NASB, it doesn't matter. Your translators have made decisions for you, and that's one reason that we find it to be so important especially for people who are going to be in leadership to try to take some some courses in, in biblical languages, because all of a sudden you start to realize that these things have been decided for you, and that it's not just a, a straightforward translation from, it can't just be a straightforward translation, people have to make choices for you. And you know,
1: I, this reminds me of a passage from Matthew 23, where it says, scribes and Pharisees uh, sit on Moses' seat, and I was thinking, you know, if we just think of scribes as the Masoretes, does that mean Yeshua says we need to follow? When they say don't read what's written, read what we tell you to uh, instead
0: of what is written, what do we do then? Oh, man. J- uh, Rob is Rob's jumping ahead. We're going to talk about <laughs> Matthew 23 today. We talked about Matthew 23 two weeks ago. We're going to talk about it again today, and uh, so so we'll get to that. Hey, but first, welcome to the Robin Caleb Show. If you're listening, I know that the first five minutes of this show was a lot of information, of <laughs> real heady stuff. Stick with us because we're we're gonna we're gonna have some fun today. Um, so welcome, all 36 of you who listen to us. We are very happy that that our our diehard 36 are with us. Uh, and we know we know that there are probably more people than 36 people that listen to us, but that's what we have in our heads is that there's 36. Maybe it makes it easier for us to actually be a little bit looser, to think that there's really not that many people out there listening to us. But hey, be a part of the conversation. Write us, radio at com. You can also write me personally, C. Hag at TorahResource.com. Uh, Rob is R. Vanhoff at com. Follow us on Twitter, at Caleb Hag two G's and Hegg. Follow Rob Vanhoff on Twitter, at Rob Van Hoff, two F's and Van Hoff. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, so how's your week been? My week's been, I, I've been good and, uh, and a little frustrated, but I've been for the most part good. How's your week been, Rob? The weeks, uh, it's been wonderful. I was able to help my dad get
1: a bunch of stuff done. Grateful for that. I'm, uh, just been immersed in the Word and, and getting into uh, gear both for fall quarter at Tor Resource Institute, as well as Yom Kippur. Uh, you know, local with our local community here for the fall feasts, and trying to get some get our yard cleaned up so when we build a sukkah and have people over, it won't look like we <laughs> neglected our yard. It'll look like you just cleaned. Well, we've yeah, like I think I've mentioned before, we've got some weeds that are probably still going to be out there,
0: but you know. I could probably
1: do another couple. What, dump loads. what can you do?
0: Hey, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, for I, I also forgot to mention if you uh, if you are listening to us and not watching us, you can watch us on YouTube. Uh, type in Caleb Hag into the YouTube search. My channel will come up. I post all of our our shows. And by the way, this is exciting. We are now on the iTunes store. It's not <laughs> it's not Tour Resource Radio. It's just the Robin Caleb Show. So you can find us. <laughs> on iTunes, and then then listen to us. So this is one of the exciting things that's happened to me, and I will show this to the people on YouTube. If you're, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll show you this. So anytime my father goes to Half Price Books, I know I'm going to get some good stuff, because what he does is he goes, he finds all the books that are good deals that he already has, but he can't give them up because they're such good deals, but he already has them. So what does he do? He buys them and then gives them to me. So every time he goes to half-price books, he doesn't buy anything. I make out with like five or six books. So I got a couple of good ones here. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, Gordon D. Fee and Douglas Stewart. I'm excited Fee, about it. We
1: use uh, – Fee has a uh, – it's a exegesis, New Testament exegesis book that's awesome. So uh, Fee is a great authority on uh, well, my, very well-grounded.
0: My dad said that he used this specific book a lot. He he, he uh, looked at this book a lot when he was writing his in, uh, interpreting the Bible course. So I'm excited for that. Uh, this is one that I've, I've wanted for a long time. I don't have on my shelves. Second edition, Turning Points. Yes, Turning Points. Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity by Mark Knoll. And uh, if you haven't listened to this show, anyone who has listened to this show knows that I am somewhat of a History enthusiast when it comes to church history. Love it. This is a good one, too. And, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this this book on the show. A, uh, a Compend of the Institutes of Christi- uh, Christian Religion by John Calvin. Wow. Yes. And uh, edit, edited by Hugh Kerr. That'll be good. My dad said he found this one for $2. William Foxwell Albright, a twen- 20th century genius. It's a biography. Look at the size of that book. Two that bu- is going to be an amazing two box story. To exactly, read. and then last but not least, uh, and I, we all have, uh, we all have uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in some form of a translation. Of course, Vermesh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, his translation. So you know that's kind of a must. Got to have that on the shelf, and now I do. Um. So or, yeah, on the on the. Desktop right now on the yes or on the desktop. Okay, so we've had some interesting things happen in the past in the past week. Um, we had somebody write in. We're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. And, and we've had a lot of interaction about our last post uh, or our, our last show, I should say, when we talked about Jonathan Kahn and his new book on the uh, the shmita as he like the Shemitah as he likes to call it the Shemitah year. Um, now, when I talk on Facebook, maybe it's because people can't hear inflection. I don't know. But when I talk on Facebook, I, uh, I tend to get this a lot. People say, you're getting very emotionally charged or uh, don't be so defensive. I, you know, I, I don't think that that's how I am. You know, I just, I just bring up the points that I think are relevant for the conversation and people seem to get offended. So I apologize to anyone if I offended them. Uh, but, you know, I, I just find it uh, interesting how people uh, think Khan is is really doing great things. Um, Does Khan push for – I was thinking about this. Again, I've never watched
1: an interview with him. I haven't read his books. Um, but I've talked to people who really are excited about uh, they seem to be excited about his work in one way or another, and mm-hmm. my question is, does Khan promote is he telling American Christians that they need to repent and return to the Torah and keep the commandments of god
0: that i don 't know and i don 't want i 't want to speak outside of church as it were i don 't want i don 't want to say something that isn 't true of of Khan look Jonathan Kahn, no matter how I think he 's marketing himself and no matter how I think he 's not uh, giving the text the scholarship that it deserves, okay? Uh, I definitely am not questioning his faith. He seems like he has very strong faith and like he loves lo- loves the Word of God. I, that is not in question in my mind. It seems like he has good intentions. He's, You know, I don't think that Khan is sitting at home going, ha, 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 I'm going to trick all these people into believing this and then I'm going to make a lot of money. That's not my idea of Khan. Uh, it seems like he's very sincere in what he's doing. Uh, I know that he's associated with the MJAA, which is, uh, what we like to call him alphabet. It's one of the alphabet groups, uh, Messianic Jewish Alliance. I I don't know. I, I always forget what it stands for. Uh, anyway, the MJAA, it's hard to lock down what they believe because, uh, there's so many different congregations throughout the United States. That we never really know, you know, you can go to one congregation, they're going to say, no, we believe that the Torah is for everybody. You can go to another congregation, they're going to say, no, the Torah has been done away with, but we keep the Jewish traditions and festivals because it it attaches us to the Jewish people or because it's a good, you know, it's a good evangelical tool or because we want to get back to our Jewish roots as Jewish believers. Uh, There's all shades of, of congregations. So it's hard to know. What camp uh uh Khan falls into i I don't know to be honest with you, he calls himself a rabbi. I don't think I've ever you know i I it would not surprise me at all now if one of our listeners might know better than I know for sure I mean I'm sure they do uh maybe you can tell tell me it's it would not surprise me at all however, if Khan basically said that the Torah does not need to be kept uh I, I don't know. I I don't want to. I, like I said, I don't want to speak outside. of So,
1: church. if anybody, let's just say, hey, any of our listeners, if you know uh, Khan's position, if he's preached, if you have a citation, if you can quote a book or an article that he's written uh, indicating this, because that would be important for me to to see. Is is there a call to repentance and a return to God's Torah, sure, yeah. along with this idea of judgment of the nation for not uh, keeping the Shemitah year, or whatever that is.
0: Well, it seems like uh, it seems like he's preaching that America hasn't kept the covenant. What covenant? What's the role of commandments? Yeah, but view? see, but in my, it, it, see, it would seem to me that that Khan would say that the nation, not being Jewish by blood, would not have the same requirement. Now, I could be wrong about this. So it's like a Noahide, a Noahide America. Kind of. Maybe. Well, I I guess so. I don't know if he's, you know, and like I said, I I don't know his position on this. And and you're right, Rob. Maybe this would actually shed some light on where he's coming from, because it does seem to me through the interactions that I've had on Facebook in the the past week, it does seem to me like maybe I'm missing something like maybe I'm not fully understanding Khan's argument. Uh, But on the very, on the very base surface, from what I've seen from the interview, I've watched two interviews now with Khan on his idea of the Shemitah year. We've read excerpts. We've uh, listened to, I know a lot of people think that all I do is argue on Facebook. I've actually taken some of the uh, arguments that were posed uh, in in a thread on the Robin Caleb Show thread on Facebook. Um, I took some of those to our congregation on Shabbat. We sat around a table and we read them and talked about them, so it's not like I just discount what people are saying you know there's there's one gentleman who I think he got a little frustrated with me, and I apologize for that um but and and maybe I was getting a little snippy and and i- you know that's that's not right I shouldn't do that um but so so this is what we got an email uh we got an email this week, and there's actually two parts of this email okay and so we will uh, we'll look at we'll look at both parts of this, this email and also another thing that's been going on on Facebook is we're back to the blood moons quote unquote the lunar eclipse thing uh, we're back to that because Sukkot's coming up anyway so uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes okay so this is what this gentleman says I, I don't even uh, I, I didn't even write down his name in my notes so I'm you know, I, and I don't is wanna, it Jim it, it is Jim I think that's his okay. his first name we won't give a last name so Jim says as for Jonathan Kahn's book Mystery of the Shmita that's the name of Kahn's book. Uh, and I'm not going to purchase it. So if somebody has a uh, a, a copy that they'd like to, uh, you know, donate to the Rob and Caleb show so we can look at it. To our archives. Uh, to our archive, Yeah. Then, then please uh, feel free. You can also just, if there's like maybe a page or two that you'd like us to see, you can Xerox that and, and send it to us. <clears throat> we don't want to. We obviously For don't. For educational purposes. Yeah. We only. obviously don't want like a free copy of, you know, ripped off or something. Uh, anyway. So he says, I understand this premise. His premise is that since America was founded at a church at ground zero, now this is all in the Harbinger, I believe, with a covenant with the Christian Judaic God that the nations assumed responsibility to God. Okay, this is the problem that I have with this statement. America was founded at a church at ground zero. Okay? Whether or not that's historically accurate or not, I I don't know. Personally, it could be completely accurate. Okay? With a covenant with the Christian Judaic God, That the nations assume responsibility to God. There was no covenant enacted at the founding of of America. That's the problem that I have with the statement. God is the one who proposes covenants to us. We don't propose covenants to God and then just assume that he has accepted them. God always puts forth his covenants first. Within his Torah, he's given us ways that we can enact covenants with him. Okay. Okay. We can take a covenant saying that we won't do something or that we will do something. But in terms of covenant obligation from God, we can't just say, oh, I'm going to make a covenant with God. Now he's bound to keep it. That's not how it works. With the covenant... Of Deuteronomy, which I believe is and I think that Klein has, has put forth a very good argument for this and has sh- and proven it I think he 's proven it, and I think uh, pretty much every scholar that i 've ever talked uh, to Meredith Klein Meredith klein he a uh, dynamite uh, scholar who has now gone to be with the Lord anyway Klein has uh, I think proven that that uh, Deuteronomy as a whole, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a suzerain vassal renewal treaty of Exodus twenty and following. Mm. Uh, and so that renewal covenant of Deuteronomy is enacted as a suzerain vassal treaty, meaning that God is the is the ultimate king. He makes a covenant with the lesser people, i.e. Israel, before they go into the land. So uh, it's not that the people were standing there and said, okay, we're about to enter the land. We're going to make a covenant. God, you're going to be bound by our covenant. No, God made the covenant. It's the same with Abraham. God made the Abrahamic covenant. God made the Mosaic covenant. All these covenants were made by God, not by the people. You can't just all of a sudden say, "Oh, I want a new car," and so I'm going to say, "If I do this uh, and make a covenant that uh, God, if you, if my end of the bargain will be this, and if I do this, then you're bound to give me this new car." It doesn't work like that. You can't do that. Uh, God has to enact the covenant. So that's okay. F- th- okay. Go could ahead. You, Jer- go ahead, Rob. Could we interpret now? Now. I remember
1: because I was CC'd with Jim's email and his point about the at ground zero. You know, there was I'm not sure what he was getting at with his point of America being covenant uh, with the church or a church covenant at ground zero. OK. But I. but my question is this. Is it w- would you be willing to think of it this way? And this is just my own reflection that we could understand the, the Declaration of In- Independence as you know, my family has a tradition. We, our family, usually on July Fourth gets together, and and one per, one of us will read the Declaration of Independence. That's nice. Yeah, it's just a tradition. Um, now, there's statements in there, and and then you know another one is the uh, the Gettysburg Address, kind of takes some of the core of that Declaration of Independence and expresses it in the time of Civil War, of course, uh, but. That there is an affirmation, while it might not be a a new covenant or a covenant, it's an affirmation of the Abrahamic covenant in a a certain degree as interpreted through the New Testament or through the Apostle Paul in that there is a freedom, and we're not going to impose— man can't uh, force other men to do this. In other words, there's an affirmation of a covenantal—Abrahamic
0: covenantal principle— in the founding of the United States. And, that, and that's what, I believe that's what Khan is, is saying. Okay. I'll, I'll give it to him. I'll give, that's what he's saying. I don't necessarily agree with it. And the reason why is because that's saying that the nation of America has a different covenant than the than the covenant that was made with Israel. Here's the issue. And and, and this, people, okay, and one of uh, the people on the, the thread said, I'm being inconsistent because what I say is, The covenant given to Moses, the covenant given to Abraham, all these covenants are all tied into one covenant, which is the new covenant. They're all enacted together as, you know, they're essentially at different times. They're all enacted. We fall as Israel, uh, as believers, we become part of the commonwealth of Israel. I think Paul teaches that very specifically in in Ephesians. Uh, Well, basically, the whole book of Ephesians is essentially about that uh, until the end, of course. But anyway... um, so we become part of Israel. We are we are grafted into Israel, and we we uh, we therefore take on the covenants. Okay, as a people, as Israel, we do not replace Israel. We don't make a new covenant outside of Israel, and say, "Oh, we want the same covenant as Israel because we're a different nation." If you're a believer in the Messiah, you become part of Israel and therefore the covenants already apply to you as a nation, as a different nation, separate from Israel, quote unquote, separate from Israel. If we're a nation of believers, what we, what we should say is we're part of Israel, not we're a new nation that needs a new covenant. That's my point. Now, now, where this gentleman on, on Facebook said I was being inconsistent is, well, then our land, the Shemitah, uh, you know, the Shemitah year should apply to our land as well. The, the covenant given to Israel has boundary markers in terms of land. The land of Israel is for the covenant people, not the rest of the world. Now, if we live outside of the land, there are specific things that, uh, that apply to us outside of the land as well. But it doesn't mean that all of a sudden our land becomes Israel. And that's what I see is trying to be done within this whole concept of Khan is that America is, is that he's trying to make America into the land of Israel. It doesn't work like that. Look, you can't build the temple in America. You know, the, the Mormons try to do this. You can't build the temple in America and say that we can sacrifice there now. The, the sacrificial system had priests, specific line of priests and the sacrifices had to be done where God put his heart, heart and his eyes, which is in the land of Israel, which is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Okay, well, we can't all of a sudden say, well, we, we believe just like uh, Israel does. We have this new covenant that we're enacting. And so we're going to erect our own temple and say that God's going to put his eyes and his ears there. It doesn't work like that. You can't change God's covenant to move the land. As, as Gentiles, we don't all of a sudden have inheritance in the land until the millennium. When the Messiah comes back, then we have inheritance in Jerusalem and – well, not Jerusalem, in Israel itself. We have some kind of inheritance. I, I'm not good with uh well, and Yeshua will also – he's going to,
1: you know, set up the boundary stones for – in other words, the boundary markers for the tribal allotments, right? I mean because those things – it's not like in the state of Israel today you go and you go to, uh, you know, zones
0: from On one of tribe to another. I'm part of Naphtali, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I totally agree with you. But the point is is that that God gave boundary markers. If you live outside of the land of Israel, then there are specific... He says you're supposed to journey to the land to, to give your sacrifice. You're supposed to journey three times a year. If you live outside of the land, you can't bring your burnt offerings and those kind of things. What are you supposed to do? Outside of those three times of the year, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to take the money. You're supposed to buy whatever your heart's desire is. And you're supposed to enjoy it unto the Lord, right? You spend it on the the celebration, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not that all of a sudden your land becomes the land of Israel and you get to do everything in in your, in that land. So I, re, I to, to me in in the way that I'm thinking of this, I have to reject the idea that all of a sudden the land of America is supposed to le- leave its land fallow every 7 years. That was a that was a uh land Idea for Israel, for the land of Israel, not for America, not for Assyria, not for Egypt. It was for the land of Israel, and as believers, we are. If we are in the land, we're supposed to. We're supposed to keep that commandment. Commandment. If we're outside of the land, it doesn't apply. Now, now Jim goes on. Okay, he says, uh, which brings me to uh, a question related to my my quest. Um. He says, I think you mentioned in the show that Khan is incorrect in applying the Shemitah to America, but I've recently met a Messianic, Messianic believer saying they are not going to grow a garden uh, this year in order to observe the Shemitah. You mentioned the IDF is purchasing ve- vegetables this year from farms outside of Israel. I'm trying to make sense of all this. Isn't there on, uh, Isn't there a Torah for the Jew and Sojourner? Isn't the Torah for Jew and Sojourner, I think is what he meant. Does the land... Uh, uh, resting in a shemitah year applied to the whole earth. Okay, so that's my point: is that I don't believe it applies to the whole earth. And and jump in here, Rob. What do you what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I had uh, replied to that email, and I said, you know, if, if someone in America wants to let their garden kind of do whatever and and not tend it in honor of a of the seventh year, I mean, that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with. There's that, nothing but wrong. But that's with not it. the same. Yeah, that's not the same as don't tell somebody you you need to do this because this is God's commandment. I mean, there there's, does that mean they're also going to, uh, you know, release all the people that owe them money? I mean, because that's part of it too, right? I mean, are they going to, um, and then the other aspect is, are they tithing appropriately on the third and sixth years?
0: You can't, because
1: tith- those, because those are all, this is all tied together, the rhythm of the Shemitah, and then the third year tithe, the six year tithe all these things are
0: intricately uh woven as a a whole a systemic whole but but Rob, you would uh, agree with me on the fact that we are not able to tithe the tithe went to the temple you can't give your tithe to the temple because the temple mm-hmm. isn't around, so even if you were going to let your land in America they could rest, give. They could give- Give charity. Of a they time. could give charity, and that's what the rabbis say you should do. I'm not saying that you shouldn't give your money, uh, you know, and, and practice these things. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is that we are unable to keep these commands to the fullest uh, in, in temporally. We are yeah, well, un- there is
1: – Leviticus 26 is a verse that I re- replied to the email from Jim, um, 34 and 35. It says, then the land – that's the word – Eretz, right, will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are are in your enemy's land, Eretz. So the idea is we have two different uh, lands here. The land, right, and then while you're in your enemy's land. Then it says the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. It will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Shabbats while you were living on it. So the idea is... It uh, comes back to an initial point you made, Caleb, that Leviticus 26, we have a distinction between land of Israel and the enemy's land. The word Eretz is used in both cases in this passage. One Eretz refers to Israel, in which the Shemitah, rest of the land, uh, is implied. And then we have the Eretz of the enemy, where it's, where it's not uh, applied.
0: Exactly, okay, so uh, I hope that answers Jim's question, and maybe if any of our other listeners had any uh, questions about that, I hope that that takes care of that. okay, so let's move on. What are we going to move on to well we got we got more stuff to talk about by the way next next week, I've already talked to Rob a little bit about this. We've had some people talking about uh we've had people talking about all the lunar Sabbath is everyone aware of this uh people this is a new phenomenon and it is very new it's not you know i don't i this is one of the the anyway okay let's not get next week we're going to talk about the lunar sabbath and uh what people people are saying that we should be keeping it, 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 this is really a interesting uh, i don't want to say anything negative about it because we'll save that for next week i guess <laughs> 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 um yeah so if you if if you hold to a lunar sabbath or uh, if you have friends who hold a lunar Sabbath tune in next week, that's going to be interesting. We're still doing research on it because it's just, there, there's some interesting theories out there. Okay. Anyway, I want to move on and, uh, we're going to move on to this. I came across this. We, I was talking to somebody and they said, actually a, a beloved brother in, in the Lord and, uh, someone that has just been extremely kind to me and, and very nice and gracious to me. And I disagree with him on the place of Torah for the Gentiles. He does not hold to the uh, the Gentile. The, he basically holds to the the traditional traditional. I'm making quote marks for anyone who's listening on the radio. Um, traditional messianic view that the Torah is has Jewish parts that are only for the for the uh, for the descendants of, of Jacob, uh, and that the Gentiles don't have to keep those parts, i.e., Sabbath. Kosher laws, festivals, etc. So, uh, to explain that, he sent me an article. And we're not actually really going to talk about that. We talked about one law theology, what, a week or two ago? Okay, anyway. uh, So, this is by a gentleman who is well known in the messianic world named Stuart Dowerman. Uh, Mr. Dowerman. Is it Doctor Dowerman? I don't think so. I think it's. Mr. It is, is it? Doctor Dowerman, Dowerman got his
1: PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary. Okay, and his dissertation is Rabbi as um, as priest or something like as surrogate priest or something like that. Uh, really interesting study. Not really informed from rabbinic studies. He he. I mean, I think his his three advisors are like non Jewish Christian theologians and. Uh, sociologists so they um, sadly his dissertation and subsequent book does not have uh, does not reflect rigorous study of rabbinic history or text. but anyway that's my little snippet there
0: which Rob if you ever read any of Rob's uh, material his is (laughs) that's his focus of study uh, which which makes things very interesting uh, is is rabbinic literature And uh, so I always find it funny. I've seen a couple of – I've seen Rob jump onto blogs every once in a while and he'll – you know, it's like he'll make a little snippet like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then the person will be like, oh, well, I don't think that you've – obviously, you you know, maybe you should take into consideration – Uh, You know, like this book from uh, from uh, Maccabees to Mishnah, which (laughs) happens to be one of Rob's a textbook that he uses in in one of his classes. Like, oh, you you probably have never even heard of this guy, but you should check this book out. And we all sit in the office and just kind of sit back and snicker, like this guy has no clue who he's talking talking to. Anyway, okay, enough of that. So, um, back to Dowerman, Doctor Dowerman on. I think this is a blog. It's called Interfaithfulness is is the website, and um, I I had never actually been aware been made aware of this. Uh, I, I'm very aware of, of Dowerman, Doctor Dowerman. He's written some.
1: Uh, well, he's a musician. I think mm-hmm. his master's yes. degree was in music, and, and there's some classic messianic songs, uh, Jewish flavored you know worship songs from the 70s. I think that he wrote 70s and 80s. Yeah, and you might be surprised to find that he wrote them. Great great musician.
0: Yes. Okay, so uh, he, he says in this, he's answering basically what he's done is he's taken a uh, he's taken a Facebook post that had these this kind of back and forth with this lady, and he's published it because he answers some some frequently asked questions. That's the name of this post is frequently asked questions. So her question is, do you make a distinction between being Torah observant and living according to the teaching of the rabbis? Okay, that's her question. His answer, yeah. Yeah, it is a good question. His answer is this. Well, I try and follow the teachings of Yeshua who said... Now, I like that. He starts He starts very well. My response would be, well, my rabbi is Yeshua. So that's the rabbi that I follow. Yes, I follow the teaching of my rabbi. Anyway, okay, so he starts basically that way, and I appreciate that. Uh, he says, uh, who said, and then he quotes, uh, the Torah te- teachers and the perushim sit in the seat of Moshe. So whatever they tell you, Take care to do it, but don't do what they do because they talk, but don't act, End quote. Uh, this is Dowerman now speaking. He says, as Yeshua told us to do, I try and do whatever they tell us to do, because it is they who have the authority to interpret Torah while not imitating their bad example, which he chronicles in the, that chapter. I don't consider the term the rabbis to be a swear word or ne- negative category. And like I said, Yeshua says they have the authority to interpret Torah and that we should take care to do whatever they tell us while not following their example when they fail to practice what they preach. This is now I, I have to also tell you, Rob, you'll, you'll get a oh, wait a minute. Is he call? Is he a, a t- has a title rabbi? I've never heard uh, Doctor uh refer to himself as Rabbi. Darman. Well, his his
1: dissertation, "Rabbi as Surrogate Priest," is is all a ju- is a justification for what he calls Messianic rabbis.
0: Um, let's see here.
1: And so, I, I, I'd be curious to read uh, his interpretation of Matthew twenty three, where it says, "Don't be called Rabbi." I know that's a sensitive issue, but um, I think your dad has a copy of the book. But, uh, anyway, so we can so come I
0: have to. I have. Looked up, okay, so uh, on the skull, I call it the skull because uh, as, as people who know the New Testament well or the Apostolic Scriptures, Yeshua was crucified on Gugal. Okay. Yeah, Gugal because it looked like a skull. Anyway, the word for skull in Hebrew is Gugal or Google. <laughs> anyway, okay, so I've looked up on the skull uh, and it looks like Messianic Jewish Rabbinic Council. The MJRC, he is listed as Rabbi Stuart Dowerman. Uh, that's that's uh, the only place you can find it, though. Anyway, okay. So
1: would he depart from Yeshua then?
0: Yeshua's teachings to not be called that way. I would assume. I would assume, and I and like I said, I, I haven't read a lot of Dowerman to be honest with you. I would assume okay. that he takes a different uh, a different. Uh, view of that passage. Now, we talked about that passage, which is in the same chapter. Actually, it's right after this passage. Hmm. Um, He says, well, let's read the passage real quick. And I'm reading out of the ESV, okay? This is Matthew 23, 1. I'm going to go a little bit farther than Dowerman went because I want to show you the the passage that we talked about. Now, I I, I should say this before I start. Uh, Rob, my wife listened to one of our shows for the first time two weeks ago. Yay. I know. I You know, it, it, it's nice to know that we've done almost a year's worth of show, shows and she finally listens to one. Um, she told <laughs> me that I ramble and that I don't let you talk enough. And I've heard that several <laughs> times. So I, I'm going to try to get better at that. Okay, so here we go. Matthew 23, 1 is the ESV. Then uh, Yeshua said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sitting on Moses' seat, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father or earth on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the, so the, the, you can see that the two passages are, are, and when I say two passages, they're one passage. We talked about the the second part of this passage two weeks ago on the show, you know, call no man Rabbi. So anyway, let's talk about the first part of this. Um, so, Rob, I'm gonna le- I'm gonna let you go on this. I'm gonna take take the uh, leash off and and see where you go. Uh, Dowerman now is saying, and I find this to be a, a pretty common view amongst Messianics. I've heard this many times. In fact. There was a good, bro- uh, a good brother who uh, used to go to our congregation. He takes this view, and that's one reason that he actually has basically said, I don't need to keep Torah. Because the rabbis say that since you know I'm not Jewish by blood or I haven't converted, that I shouldn't keep the Torah. And so since they've been put in the seat of Moses, uh, and, and uh, they basically have the authority that I should listen to them, and therefore I'm not bound by Torah because they have the authority to tell me, that so we I mean this this is the same kind of argument I've heard from other people and Dowerman takes this same the same view. What are your thoughts on this passage? Should we be keeping Mishnah Talmud? What about the new What about the new rabbinics like uh, the Shulchan Aruch? How far does this rabbinic authority go?
1: Well, that this pardon me a critical phrase here is this uh, cathedra of Moses or Moses' seat. And this word cathedra is a Greek word, right, meaning meaning seat. And it, we actually have a few instances in rabbinic texts. Um, well, there's a whole bunch of uses of that Greek word appearing in Hebrew and in Aramaic texts in rabbinic literature. So it's it's they don't use a different word. They actually use the Greek word, but they're just writing it with Hebrew letters. And uh, one of the understandings of the cathedra uh De Moshe, the seat of Moses, is that it represents the ongoing traditional authority. In other words, that every generation there is leaders of Israel, and that they interpret the the Torah for Israel in that generation. And, that, and so some people say that the seed of Moses means that, that authority that, that transmits from generation to generation. And uh, therefore, then, since Yeshua seems to be talking about, you well, know, he's talking about scribes and Pharisees and then rabbi, people who are called themselves rabbi, that then we take that to think, oh, that means the rabbis of the Talmud, right? There are no other rabbis in the world, right? I mean, the rabbis of the Talmud and, and uh, medieval rabbis, and halakhic authorities that these uh, works that are produced over time represent those, you know, respective generations' expressions of that authority, and that that authority comes down even to today. And therefore, you know, we would look to you know the most uh, pious or orthodox uh, rabbis today and and understand them. And, and their their authority in which they operate to be our contemporary in our world today expression of the cathedral of Moses. That's one angle that people have taken, uh, and it sounds to me like that's what Dowerman sees. He says that. What I hear. Uh, yeah. So that therefore, whatever they say today, I need to. To do my best to do, and and I am in this manner fulfilling the command of Yeshua.
0: Now, That's, I've, I've heard I've heard some people. There's uh, one gentleman that I follow on Twitter, and he says that uh, we should basically the rabbinic council or the rabbinic authority was dropped after the Talmud. Like so, anything later than a certain period, we don't have to keep anymore. But I think the problems that we would run in with that view is that who decides what rabbis are. Well, here
1: is another angle. Let's just let's just assume for the let's just let's just assume for discussion's sake that the what, what I just described and which I, I believe uh, probably represents fairly accurately what uh, Doctor Dowerman and others believe that is, uh, namely, that the rabbinic leaders today of Orthodox. Judaism are the present uh, embodiment of the Cathedra of Moses, and therefore, what Yeshua says in Matthew twenty-three, verse two, applies to his disciples today with respect to their present authority. Um, one, if if that if we accept that as the reading, um, then we would have to uh, recognize that those rabbinic authorities in Orthodox. Uh, the Jewish world would not recognize the rabbinic council of Dr. Dowerman and any of the rabbis ordained through the UMJC, which is a, uh, you know, all their, their, uh, title of rabbi would not be considered legitimate. Um, in my, I, I think that, and also their, uh, statements about, uh, Yeshua, you know, statements within rabbinic tradition that have rejected Yeshua is a place where it seems like it
0: has to get swept under the table. In other words, well, and, and the way that I hear the way that I've heard it swept under the table is that it's later that those things are later. In other words, like, oh, that didn't come in until four or five hundred. So we should be keeping things of the Tosefta and the Mishnah, but things of which are for those who might not know what those are Toseft Tosefta and Mishnah are, are, uh, Earlier, not early, but earlier, uh, rabbinical uh, writings, uh, f- anywhere from the end of the or b- what beginning of the second century. I would s- I would say later. I think Rob disagrees with me on that. Uh, but all the uh, so second century, sometime in the second century, up through four, five, fifth century, fourth or fifth century. Uh, mm-hmm. So and then and then you have the Talmud, which is later. So from what I've heard, the way that people who hold to this. View that you're describing here, the way that they sweep that under the table of oh, you know, Yeshua, uh, the rabbis spoke against Yeshua, therefore, you know, what would you do with that? They sweep it under the w- table by saying, oh, that they they didn't they didn't believe that until later, you know, fifth sixth century, and by that time they were just pushing against the believers. So th- by that time we don't we don't take that as authority. We take only the Tosefta and Mishnah as authoritative.
1: I've heard it. I've heard it put this way in in among Messianic circles, you know. B- people who claim to be disciples of Yeshua yet who are promoting an orthodox Jewish lifestyle in America that and the authority of of the 16th century halakhic code called the Shulchan Aruch, that since the Shulchan and the, the argument basically is that since the Shulchan Aruch does not say it's forbidden to believe in Yeshua then therefore believers in Yeshua have no problem uh, submitting to its authority because it's not in it's uh, not in conflict. In other words, they've canonized this uh, code, um, and they're saying, "Well, <laughs> but I, you know, if you were to talk to the author of the Shulchan Arukh, who believed you, you know, it's it's pretty crazy." Well, uh,
0: well, and yeah. and we we do have yeah. listeners. We have listeners who who do hold to this view that that we should be keeping an orthodox, and we, and maybe we should clarify, maybe a from. Uh, And from is a uh, Orthodox lifestyle to be from. Uh, That's
1: Ashkenaz German, a German word meaning observant.
0: Observant. So uh, to be from, as opposed to what most people would think of Orthodox, which is like a lot of people equate Hasidic, you know, black hat, black jacket, white shirt, Hasidic. A lot of people equate that with being uh, Orthodox. That's not necessarily the case. From is. Would be orthodox, whereas Hasidic would be uh, actually is is quite a interesting and, and I think not good uh, uh, theology. So um, let's so let's talk about this a little bit. Here are some of the problems. A, lo- a lot of people take this as metaphorical, okay? And uh, there's a gentleman here. His name is uh, this is by this is edited by uh, Howard Clark Key and Lynn Kohick. It's called The Evolution of the Synagogue, Problems and Progress. There it is for people on YouTube. Uh, you, can, you can pick this book up. I, I disagree with their view, and their view is that just—and I think most Messianics would take this view, too—their view is that the seat of Moses actually is a metaphorical term. In other words, he's saying they placed themselves in the same place that Moses did, which was to give law to the people. Uh, and therefore we're allowed to and that and and from the description that Rob has given, that's kind of what I think most people are are actually uh, taking is this metaphorical idea of placing themselves in the same authority structure as Moses to give law to people okay um, however, however, it seems to me like uh there was actually something called the seed of Moses, okay. This is a giant, hang on, let me put my bookmark back in here real quick so I can show this to the camera. This is called ancient The Ancient Synagogue, The First Thousand Years. Lynn Levine. Lee. Well, I'm sorry. Lee Levine. That's what I meant to say. Lee Levine, also a quite a, a scholar, looks at a lot of archaeological things. Okay. Very interesting, by the way. I think
1: he's at Hebrew University. I, so think, he,
0: I believe you are correct. That That's... That's my understanding as well. Okay, so uh, let us now turn to the archaeological evidence. Special seats identified as the seat of Moses have been found in a number of ancient synagogues. Er, the earliest example comes from 1st century BCE, Delos, and that's spelled D-E-L-O-S, and another from 3rd century CE, Dura-Europas. Uh, uh, I'm saying that wrong, I'm sure. Three, uh, cathedrae, and that's, that means seat, cathedrae uh three cathedrae all dated to the 4th or 5th century CE have been found in Roman in the in Roman Byzantine Palestine at Hamat Tiberius the uh Schlauch excavation in the early 1920s and then he goes on um so and I should just say that the Delos or the D E L O S Delos synagogue is the earliest synagogue excavation to date that has been found from one uh, for from the first century BCE, so that's before the Messiah was on Earth. Um, so so that kind of gives you some frame of reference of of this excavation. First century BCE is is where they found this seat. There's actually a drawing of what the seat looks like when they found it. Okay, so I'm going to read just a little bit of this, and then we can talk about this. So so basically, what uh, Levine is is, and I'm pretty confident that it's Dr. Levine. What Dr. Levine is, is saying here is that, no, we've actually found these seats in synagogues. He explains them in quite quite uh, interesting depth, actually. He says, many explanations have been put forth in an attempt to explain the precise purpose of this cathedrae, meaning seat, with each explanation finding its support in a particular source or a specific archaeological find. Roth and more recently, Ramani interpret the cathedral uh, as the place where the Torah scroll was placed after it was read. And I should say that the evolution of the synagogue, the book that I referenced earlier, actually does admit that there are these seats. But, they, but basically, these, the gentlemen who wrote this are saying it's, it's, uh, that Yeshua was not referring to one of these seats in, in Matthew 23. I'm just saying that to let you know that there are other views out there. Uh, so back to Levine he says most scholars, however, view the cathedral as the seat for a leader in the congregation, although opinions differ as to the precise role of the leader judge Arche synagogue or spiritual religious figure in uh, such as a Pharisee sage preacher or some honored quest arche synagogue means leader of the synagogue you could uh, and I shouldn't say that uh, actually arche synagogue i've written uh, i've written on this before there uh, There have actually been women who have been uh, it, it could be an honorary title as well. women have been placed uh, there have been plaques of women being Arche synagogue uh, and we believe that that 's probably because they gave money. They probably donated significant amounts of money to have something built or fixed on the on the synagogue. Uh, but you have men and women who uh, on different plaques excavated that say that they are the Arche Synagogue. So we, Arche Synagogue could mean anything from leader of the synagogue all the way up to someone who donated money and therefore was honored with an honorific title, Arche Synagogue. Anyway, all this to say, uh, the whole point of me reading this is to say that we know both the books for and against the idea of a metaphorical Seat of Moses in Matthew 23. All of them admit that there is the Seat of Moses, there, or that there's this chair up at the front of the uh, synagogue. It's ornate. It has a specific function, but no one really knows what it is, and it is called at least by Levine and many other scholars call it the Seat of Moses. We have rabbinical at- attestation to this as well. People calling things the Seat of Moses. Okay, so with this in, in mind, with this in mind, how, talk about this, Rob. You're the scholar here and a good one at that. Talk mm-hmm. to me about uh, the idea of a physical seat of Moses. And what would this do? You know, we In Levine, we, we learned that it could be a place of, uh, and I might not have read this specific part. I've actually been reading this all morning long, so I got a lot of it in my head. We learned that Levine actually says it could be a place for leaders of the synagogue. It could be for special guests, honorific guests that are there. It could be for uh, a number of different things. It's not really for sure what this what this chair was used for. Some people say that it was to place the. It wasn't a chair. It was actually a stand for the Torah scroll once it was uh, rolled up. So, talk about this uh, this physical seat of Moses that we have in archaeological digs, and how this might shed light on the passage that we're talking about.
1: Well, uh, I think your father has a, a you know I wouldn't be able to sharpen his thought thinking on it anymore uh, in my reading of his article on uh, it's on it's on the Torah Resource website. What version of the Mishnah did Paul read? You wouldn't know by the title of it. Um, by the main title, there that this article would get into that, but certainly pages 14, 15, 16, uh, Tim Haig does get into this uh, issue of Matthew 23 and this, uh, the seat of Moses. And he talks about the evidence of the archaeology behind, behind the physical seat. Um, and it, in a nutshell, I think that it, it does seem to relate to the teaching of the Torah in the synagogue. And we have other places in, in the writings, that, uh, particularly the Acts of the Apostles, as well as Yeshua in the Gospel of Luke, where he go- stands up to read and then sits down, all eyes are on him, and he gives an interpretation of the scripture that was just read. Uh, that uh, And of course, Acts 15 discusses the reading of, of the Torah. We have in Acts 13, where the Torah and the prophets are written, and then... Uh, it's, uh, Acts 13. That's, is that Kepha right there? Or is that, I think it's Peter. Uh, my memory, sorry, my memory's a little foggy right there on Acts 13, but he speaks up and teaches and, and cites the Psalms, etc., in his, uh, discussion of, uh, the scriptures. So it's the scriptures being interpreted, uh, sometimes in a prophetic manner. For example, it's the prophetic, uh, understanding the Torah as a prophetic document in Luke 4, reading the synagogue, re- understanding the Torah as uh, having to do with the prophecies related to the Messiah in uh, Acts 13. And so, um, it, I, you know, I lean towards understanding Matthew 23 in that, it, towards that direction, that it has to do with, an uh, teaching of the scriptures of the, of the Torah and probably the prophets uh, for the community at large that would be gathered. You know, a lot of people would, this is the only chance really that they would hear and be able to engage in discussion of the scriptures uh, in their day-to-day life is on the Shabbat. um, And that this, I I would agree with this article by Tim Hague, that this is to be uh, differentiated from the teaching of those specialist type of interpretations of the commandments. This is, you know, the halakhot that really served to distinguish the different, you know, disciples of this Pharisee against the disciples of this other Pharisee. You know, they have uh, their—in our day, it's like, what, uh, do you wear a kippah or not? And then it's like, well, if you do wear a kippah, is it black silk? Is it uh, knit? could do do you have is it okay to have a rainbow kippah? Uh, uh, you know uh, the idea of the payah how long do your payahs need to be you know when is it appropriate to shave your beard or where can you cut your beard or not to hel it in your you know do seat seat need to be have blue in them or not you know all these things how do you wear your hat or how do you wear your clothes what clothes do you wear what order do you put your shoes on you know all these things are specialist uh doctrines that uh, I think are not the things that are being taught on, on a shabbat, uh, whatever those par- parallel type of things might have been in the first century um, those are yeshua's not telling uh, his disciples to go find another rabbi <laughs> you know
0: well and, and and you in within the now you 're the rabbinic guy, so uh, maybe you can shed light on this we know that the Ammahtz, which is a term for uh, the common man, in other words, the person work, working out in the field, the guy. Cultivating his farm and and so on and so forth. So that would be the Amha Aritz. We know that the in within later rabbinic literature and the, and the, this might not shed light on first century the first century text of Matthew twenty three, but we know from r- later rabbinic literature that it seems like the rabbis kind of look down on the Amha Aritz and say, well, there we shouldn't be teaching them. The intricacies of of uh, the the Torah, and when they say the intricacies of the Torah or whatever the term they might use, they're talking not about the Torah itself. They're talking about the rabbinic, like their traditions. Their traditions, yeah,
1: yeah. So and, and here here's the, here's a the problem that I have with you know the view I tried to map out at the beginning, that, that there is, in every generation, an official seed of Moses that's this ethereal authority that goes from generation to generation, and we need to listen to the rabbis today because they embody that for our, our world today. And so whatever, whatever they say and however they define Torah goes. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, there's, we need to look at the basic data if if i believe that the, the, in the canon of the bible in the new testament right i believe in the that the matthew is the only theres only one location where we have this kind of verse that we need to think about so it's like okay uh so let's what other information do we have from our inspired apostolic writings well uh one is in acts Acts chapter fifteen, where it says fifteen five, it says that some believers who belonged to they were from the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise the new believers and order them to keep the Torah of Moses. Well, they're Pharisees, and they I could just say well they're Pharisees, therefore they sit on the seat of Moses. Therefore, I need to we need to do what they did. But guess what? By the end of Acts fifteen, we find that the body of Messiah had us had a basic interpretive approach that weighed things in terms of the terms of the new covenant. In in other words, uh, no, God promised that he's going to write it on the heart. And uh, we have Kepha there, the Simon Peter, we have Yaakov or James there. And there, no one says, Oh, well we have to do the Pharisees are saying we need to do it this way. Therefore we need to do it. Uh, Another uh, piece of data we have by a different author, gospel of Mark, mark one twenty two it says that people were astonished at his teaching that is yeshua's he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes so Yeshua teaches different things from the scribes sometimes, so I think we need to use our minds. God wants us to be engaged in the scriptures and to weigh things out and and to to be just in our weights and measures, not to try to to give you know he wants us to think in carefully, and he wants us to chew on the scriptures, not to just blindly take this one scripture and equate that to, oh, that's today's rabbis, therefore I turn off my brain, and well, I don't need to listen to the rest of the Gospels or the letters of Paul, or et cetera.
0: Well, I want to I actually look at, at this, this passage itself. Okay, so we have something going on here, and I think if you haven't figured it out by now, uh, Rob and I obviously do not take the view that we should be keeping the, the traditions of the rabbis. Uh, now, now, granted, I, if you're watching this, you notice that I have a yarmulke on right now. I am not saying that all tradition is bad; that we should throw out all tradition. I am not a Karite. I don't hold to a Karite calendar. I don't. You know, that's all a tradition in and of itself. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe that's better. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at that.
1: And not only that, Caleb. Here's an important point. Yeshua says, he's, he, "If you look just in Matthew, it's not just the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew. He also talks about the Sadducees." Yeah. Well, notice how come he, he he's pointingly saying, don't listen to the Sadducees' interpretation of Torah. Why? Well, they don't even believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels. So Yeshua is kind of saying, you know, if you're going to think about the Scriptures, these are the the schools of thought that at least have some foundational anchoring that is correct. Don't listen to the Sadducees. And I think today
0: the Karaites, Imagine themselves to be S- descendants S- of the Sadducees. Yeah, exactly. So, but, okay, so, but you have, you have in here, uh, now, you brought up Matthew 15, uh, or Acts 15, we'll talk about that in a few seconds. So, uh, Yeshua says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, okay? But then down here, he said, so he says, you know, so observe whatever they tell you. But down down in four, he says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. does that does four actually sound to people like he's saying that we should try to observe the heavy burdens that are hard to bear? No, it sounds to me like he's saying this is nonsense. The heavy burdens uh, hard to bear are complete you know complete nonsense. And that's kind of the oral the oral tradition that it sounds like and to me he's saying, no, get rid of that. So it sounds exactly. like. Exactly. He- and even if, even if all we had was the Gospel of
1: Matthew, even if the Gospel of Matthew is all we had, we would go back to Matthew 11. We'd say, wait a minute. Yeshua just said, take my yoke upon you. Yeah. Exactly. So that's his call to say, come unto me, all labor, all who labor and, and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Right? And, and then, so he would not be saying, Yeshua must not be saying by the Gospel of Matthew just itself without looking to mark without looking to luke acts he's saying look do it my way follow me he can't say take my easy yoke upon you
0: and then say oh by the way i want you to go do all these things that, the, that these people tell you <laughs> yeah, to all do. these all these people tie up heavy burdens and hard, uh, that are hard to bear do those too? do my do my easy <laughs> uh, easy my easy yoke but then do all these heavy burdens that are that are hard to bear as well um, so, so it se- seems to me like that that doesn't make any sense, and no one wants to no one wants to deal with that. Who's saying that we should be that we should be uh, following the the rabbis? My father in the uh, in the article that that Rob referenced, which is what version of the Mishnah should uh, did Paul read? He says this, and and I'll just read a short snippet here. He says the, this this my father the uh, but the second point is even more important. While the exact identification and function of the seat of Moses in the first century Judaism eludes us, most scholars agree that the seat or chair of Moses was connected with the synagogue, not the Beit Midrash. Now, this is a word that people might not know. There's the Beit Sefer, the house of the book, and the Beit Midrash. Beit means house, Midrash, so uh, tradition or, or the Midrash. Uh, so, so there's two there's two different uh, schools that are talked about. There's the Beit Sefer and the Beit Midrash. The Beit Sefer is the synagogue where where we would uh, assume Yeshua, you know, where we know Yeshua went on Shabbat. Uh, he went to the Beit Sefer, the house of the book. This is where the Torah was read every Shabbat. Okay, and this is what we have in Matthew. In I'm sorry, in Acts 15, they say, "For Moses is read every week in the you know, every Shabbat." Uh, in the synagogue. So, uh, so you, have, you have Moses being read, which is the Torah. The Torah is read in the Beit Sefer. In the Beit Midrash, however, okay, the Beit Midrash is somewhere where you have all these extra burdens, I believe, uh, but uh, you have all this extra non-biblical things that are put on the Torah. And it's like the Rabbi's Club. Exactly, it's like it's like exactly. the rabbis association, and, and, and the am that word that we learned earlier—the am ha'aretz is our—we're not in the bait in the bait midrash, and not only that, but if, if here's something that many people might not realize: the Mishnah. Okay, uh, we talked about what the Mishnah was earlier. The Mishnah does not have hardly any references whatsoever to the Torah. They're very few and far between. They're very hard to find. Instead, the Mishnah is people talking about what the rabbis said about tradition. It's not for the most part.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah,
0: for the most part. Now there are some. There is some scripture in there, but for the most part, it's the, the it, it does not look at Torah. Okay, and so in the Beit in the bait uh, midrash, you had people uh, talking about uh, talking about tradition. So, moreover, that Yeshua speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees sitting in the seat of Moses, and this is back to my father, I'm quoting, would very likely make a connection to the written Torah, not the oral Torah. First, as noted earlier, the scribes uh, were the preservers and transmitters of the written biblical text, not the orally repeated tradition. Second, the fact that Yeshua states the scribes and Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses favors a linkage to the written Torah given at Sinai, by the hand of Moses. Some might argue that the oral Torah was also linked to Moses, for the rabbis taught that all of the oral Torah was also revealed at Sinai. However, the rabbinic teaching that God gave the the oral Torah to Moses at Sinai was not extant in the first century, but was first introduced by rabbis in the Amaraic period, 3rd century CE. Thus, in the time of Yeshua, there would have been no direct connection between the seed of Moses and the oral Torah. I, agree. I absolutely agree with I do that. Too. absolutely I do. agree
1: with that. Um, and uh, it's so important because if we do, if we accept, oh, well the cathedral of Moses is the, uh, those rabbis today and they're telling us that oh we have a we have a second torah that was delivered on Mount Sinai and it's not in the written torah it's a separate revelation altogether then that's like wow. Uh, then we have to accept 613 for Jews, 7 for Noahides. And then we have to accept yeah we we have to start taking away apostolic viewpoint apostolic worldview and we have to start taking away oh I, I'm not a son of Abraham oh I'm a son of Noah I guess mm. oh the commandments aren't for me okay um, and next thing you know uh, we've totally dismantled oh, oh, yeah, the armor of messiah we've right. taken off we've taken off the armor of God uh, for the sake of trying to please men and please some man tradition out of fear that, Oh, these guys are an authority and I need to do it their way and turn off my own brain and, and
0: not read the scriptures. And so, so if you haven't figured it out, Rob and I disagree with Dowerman's view that this is talking about oral tradition. No, we do not believe that oral tradition is what uh, is, is binding. Uh, we believe that Yeshua, the Messiah gave us, his teaching, his tradition as a rabbi, the only true rabbi and that is bound up within the Apostolic scriptures, I.e the New Testament. All right we're going to talk about next week we're going to talk about the lunar Sabbath and that uh, that interesting uh, that interesting view of what is the lunar Sabbath. Uh, So join us then as we try to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.